Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. 2 Peter chapter 3. When I introduced 2 Peter, because we've been going through it for a few weeks now, I mentioned that the word know or knowing is, is about 16 times recorded in three chapters. So uh, Peter, this is his last epistle, and uh, you know he, it's, it's, he's trying to convey to uh, his readers what's on his heart. And so there's a lot of things that he wanted his readers to heart and chapter to know. In chapter one, he wanted uh, the believers, us by extension, to know about our salvation and how to grow in it. And we talked about that in the very first week we went through Second Peter. Then he also talked about how to know your scripture, to know your scripture and to be grounded in it. Again, that's chapter one. Chapter two, he wanted his readers to know about their adversaries. And when I talk about the adversaries, I mean the false prophets and false teachers. That's what chapter two is about. And now we're here at chapter three. And chapter three deals with prophecy. Know your prophecy. And we'll be talking about mockers in the last day. We'll be talking about the day of the Lord and how to live in light of that day. So that's really what we're looking at this morning. So let me begin with reading verse one of chapter three. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you be, may be mindful of the words which were spoke, spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Notice he talks about the pure minds of the believers. That word pure is elikrines, or krines, and it comes from two words, two Greek words. The first word is highly uh, or hyle, I should say, and that means the shining or splendor of the sun, and krino, or krino, which means to judge or to discern. And so uh, uh, taking those two Greek words and putting together an elikrines, it could be interpreted that they're having a pure mind, that he's describing them as believers with a pure mind. In other words, their thought life is pure. You know, are you living... Your life, are you, are, is your thoughts and your, your heart attitude, your motives, are you living in the light of the sun, S-O-N, not sun, S-U-N, in the light of the sun? That, that could be one way that, that Peter is, is trying to convey to his readers. But when you look at the context of this chapter, because I always try to keep everything in context, I think the context could also be interpreted, maybe more rightly so with this chapter, are you discerning things in the light of the word of God? in the light of the word of the sun. And so I think that might be even a, a more applicable uh, uh, way to interpret that, the pure minds. And so he wanted to stir up the pure minds of his readers. Now, you know, the older I get, the more I need my mind stirred. Um, I don't know if you ever do that. You ever tell somebody, hey, um, remind me, you know, tomorrow. Remind me later today. Remind me because I'm going to forget. And usually what they do, right, they say, well, remember to do that. It's like, no, 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 wait till later. Uh, and, and I'm finding that I'm becoming more and more forgetful. Uh, a few Sundays ago, came to church and I was standing here. We're getting ready to worship uh, right before the worship I realized I left my iPad which had all my notes on it so I'm like oh 
that's at home. We couldn't find anywhere. So I had to dash home and stuff. I had forgotten. And uh, I'm, I feel like I'm doing that more and more nowadays. But he wanted to stir up his readers about some very important things. And he, he mentions it's a reminder. So it's another like, hey, I'm going to give you this new revelation you've never heard before. That's not that. It's not new news. The things that we're going to talk about this morning, unless you're, you know, you've never written, your, written or read your Bible before, it's not new news to you. But we need to be reminded. And some of the things that he wants to remind his readers and what we should be reminded of this morning, first of all, God's word is true. Everything that God says is going to happen, it happens. In fact, you know, sometimes people look at prophecy and, uh, you know, what's coming in the future. And they say, well, you know, there's a, that's, a, we gotta, that's a figurative interpretation. You know, this is just a picture of this. And it's, it's not really literal and stuff. But I look back at all the prophecies that have been fulfilled already in the past. Every single one of them has been fulfilled literally according to God's word. So I, look, I, so I, I see that in the past. I look forward to the future. I go, well, if everything back there was fulfilled literally, why wouldn't everything going forward be fulfilled literally? And that's kind of the way I look at prophecy anyways. God's word is true. The next thing he wants to communicate is life as we know it will not continue indefinitely. We'll touch on that a little bit later. There will be a last day. You know, for believers for many, many years, especially since Israel came back into the, into the land, it's like, you know, Jesus is coming back. This is the generation that's seen the fig tree. Man, Jesus is coming back. And, and for a couple, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe 50 years, the saints have been saying, and Jesus is coming back soon. Well, you know what? There will be a last day. It's coming soon, I believe. But there will be a last day. There will be a generation that will be the last generation on this planet before Christ returns for his church. It could be us. It could very well be us. We'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. The last days, the Old Testament prophets spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it and the apostles spoke of it. God's word is true again. Well, how, and then the next thing he wants to convey is how to recognize the last days. I am so thankful for the word of God because it's not, you know, if you didn't have God's word today and you looked at what's going on in the world around us, it'd be like, oh man, I can't make sense of anything. And I'll bet, although your neighbors and unsaved friends or whatever, they might not admit it, but I'm sure they're like, man, this is weird. I mean, this is like unprecedented, you know? But we have God's word. We're told how to recognize the last days. And then the application, because it's great to know those things, but the application is how do we to live our lives in light of the last days? And so Peter's going to touch on all those things this morning. And so the very first thing, how do we know that we're living in the last days? People have said that all along. Well, how do we know? Well, here's one way to know. There's many ways in scriptures, but here's one way that Peter writes in verse 3. Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. You know, the Bible has a lot of things to say about living in the last days, but here's the one thing that Peter mentions. In the last days, in the last days, fundamental Christians will be mocked and derided. What I mean by fundamental Christians, what I mean by a fundamental Christian, I mean Christians in general could be but listen, the question that these scoffers are saying is, hey, where's the promise of his coming? If you believe in a literal interpretation of scriptures, you're a fundamentalist. I hate to say that, but there you are. You're a fundamentalist. That's what we, fundamental Christians, we believe fundamentally that what God says in his word is true. 
and we take the literal interpretation of scriptures. If you believe in the literal interpretation of scriptures, you will be mocked in this culture. If you believe in a literal and soon return of Jesus Christ, you will be mocked. I'm sad to say even some Christians will mock you that don't believe the same way you do. I'm not saying they're not saved, but they might not believe the same way. But this mocking will be coming in the last days. And I'm not talking about Christian mockers here, so I just want to get that straight. In the last days, Peter says, scoffers will come walking according to their own lusts. What does that mean, walking according to their own lusts? We talked about that in chapter 2. It talks about being driven by your sinful lusts. Your, whatever, whatever your impulse is, that's what drives you. You don't, you don't have any other external control except for what I feel like doing. You know, I'm, I'm angry, so I'm going to explode on this person. I'm, I'm, I'm lustful, so I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? It's just driven by our passions, our sinful passions. And their own ideas are their own, are their own laws, basically. As a result, they despise any and all authority beyond themselves. And I don't know if you can see that, but, you know, this generation, we're seeing it more and more and more. People don't want to be told what to do. People don't want any authority in their lives. They don't want anything controlling them. And we're not just talking about civic laws and authorities, although that is a great big thing here, but even God's authority over the order of creation. You know, I was born a male but I identify as a female. I mean, it's like, it's this craziness that's going on in this world around us. And because people are a law unto themselves, and because they despise any and all authority, they are what Peter says, presumptuous. And presumptuous means that you basically fail to observe the limits of what is permitted or what is acceptable. And you basically boldly and without fear push the envelope of morality. And we're seeing that in spades in our culture right now. Scoffers will come in the last days. In what way will they scoff? Look at verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's a Latin word, it's called in statu quo. We call it, you know, the status quo, right? Things have just, it's, it's the way things have always been. That's a dangerous thing to assume, that things are always going to stay the same. There's a good example of that in the Bible with the book of, jo or book of Genesis talking about Joseph. Remember Joseph, man, he went to bed one night as a slave in Egypt. The next day, he was the prime minister of Egypt. Talk about, talk about, you know, man, a radical change in a 24-hour period. His life was never the same after that. That's a good example. There's a bad example that Jesus talks about, about the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12. Or, yeah, chapter 12. The farmer that, he had a great bumper crop, and so he's like, man, I'm going to build more, you know, silos. I'm going to, I'm just going to store up, I'm going to store up, and man, I'm going to, I'm going to kick back. Man, I have it made for the rest of my life. And the Bible says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? person was rich towards the world, but not towards the kingdom of God. You can ask anyone who's had a life-altering, changing experience what that's, I mean, we've all had changes. Our lives can change in a moment of time. 
And so these scoffers are like, hey, creation's been like this all along. And they won't say creation, right? The world's been like this all along. You know, nothing's, there's been no, been, been no changes. Peter says this in verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. I'll stop right there. They willingly forget. See, it's not a, a lack of ability to know. It's not even a lack of opportunity to know. For them, it's a choice not to know. Paul described that type of individual in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They didn't even want the knowledge. It's nothing else but a moral choice not to know. You might get into a conversation with someone and they'll say, well, you know, what about this? What about that and stuff? It's not, it's like if you answered their question sufficiently, it's not like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, I believe Jesus Christ. I, I believe what you're saying. That's not that. It's just an argument for the sake of argument because they don't want to know. They choose not to know. It's a moral choice. Solomon described that type of individual also in Proverbs 1.22. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. You look at what's going on in the world around us and you go, you know what? Common sense says, you know, X, but they're saying Z. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. It's like the decisions and the things that are being made and the things that people are doing, it's like it just defies common sense. And it's because they're choosing not to know. They hate knowledge. And so what do they say? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says they willingly forget. What do they willingly forget? Well, they, I'm going to use a fancy word, antediluvian world. It's basically the earth before the flood. So that's, I like to impress with big words once in a while. For me, it's a big word. For you, it's probably like, oh, I, what are you talking about? See, the truth is, all things have not remained the same since the creation. The world that then existed prior to the flood was created by God, by the word of God. In fact, you can read that in John 1.1. 1, 1. In fact, Jesus is the word that spoke creation into existence. He says, the earth standing out of water and in the water. What is he referring to? Well, the pre-flood world or the anti-diluvian, anti-diluvian world. You can read about it in Genesis 1, verses 6 through 10. There was water on the earth. God separated the land from the water. There was water above the earth. The Bible calls it above the firmament. The firmament basically is our atmosphere, our sky. There was water above the firmament. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that there was a canopy over the planet before the flood, a vapor. And they, the scientists call it the greenhouse effect. You know, it, it filtered out the, the uh, gamma rays. Those rays couldn't get through to cause aging, and you know they're not good for you. Um, the result was, prior to the flood, the world was physically quite a bit different than the world that you and I know today. Because of that vapor canopy, there was longevity of life. You look in the biblical record of how old Adam was, how old Methuselah was, the, the ages of Noah himself, how old they lived. They, they lived very long lives. There was very large sea and land animals, including dinosaurs on the earth. It's interesting, uh, I was doing a little research on that, and I didn't know this, but there's sharks 
and lizards, some snakes, or maybe all snakes, I don't know, certain amphibians that are called indeterminate growers. In other words, they grow until they die. They never stop growing. So if you can imagine, you know, man mankind's living, you know, hundreds of years, and these animals are living hundreds of years, how big would they be? How big would they grow, some of these? Amazing. So the world looked different. There also was no rain. The Bible says that a vapor, a mist, used to come up from the ground to water the ground. There's no rain prior to the flood, and there would have been no flooding either. There also, because of that canopy, if you've ever been in a greenhouse before, or you know, it's kind of a humid, but it's kind of a moderate thing. You don't, you don't get the extreme cold. You also don't get the extreme heat. So that would have been different. There probably, and I'm, I'm going to step on a ledge, but there probably wasn't any jagged mountain ranges. I think that happened after the flood. Well, but there also would have been no glaciers. So, you know, physically, man, the earth was different prior to the flood. There's one thing that didn't change, though. The world was not morally different prior to the flood. It's interesting, you know, Cain was the first murderer. You read that in, in the book of Genesis. One of his descendants is a guy by the name of Lamech. And he's only five generations from the creation of the earth. Five generations past, past Cain. And he said this to his two wives. I think he had two wives. He said this to his wife or wives. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And someone hurt me? Man, I'm going to kill him. I mean, it's just, it's just the, you know, the, 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 the violence just going to the next degree. It's like, you know, bringing a gun to a knife fight. You know, it's like, you're going to hurt me? We're going to put you in the hospital. You know, that's, a, that's the attitude here. By the time of the flood, we read in Genesis that wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the earth was filled with violence. You know, Jesus said that before he returns, it's going to be like the days of Noah. And I, I, I don't even think I have to tell you guys. You look around and see violence is just on the increase. So what's my point? My point is the people who were alive before the flood. Now, the Bible never says this. It's funny. You know, I grew up with the story of Noah. You guys did too, I'm sure. And you always read about how Noah was mocked. And, or maybe you're told Noah was mocked. You know, the Bible doesn't say that. But I'm assuming that that's true. I think it can probably be inferred, but there isn't actually a verse that says outright, Noah was mocked. So just set you straight. But I do think people alive before the flood probably scoffed Noah, just like today there are scoffers in the last days. For the people in Noah's day, man, that world that they knew would be radically, completely altered. Well, they wouldn't know it because they died, but... Noah and his descendant and his family that was on the ark, they're the only ones. They would have, the world that when they stepped out of the ark, man, it would have been a totally different earth. It probably would have, you know, felt like they landed on a different planet because it was so different. And it only happened within a space of 40 days and 40 nights. You know, one of the things, and I, you know, I really appreciate ministries like Answers in Genesis. I don't know if you ever you know, went to the Ark Encounter. I, I know some of us from, the, not me, but some people from the church went not too long ago there. And, um, you know, that's the one thing that it seems like people try to try to attack is that's the Genesis record. The record of the flood, the record of creation, you know, everything that they can, because if you can destroy that 
foundation, man, you can, you can kind of change everything as far as what you believe. Scoffers today willfully reject that there was a worldwide flood. They, they, they willfully reject that. Uh, they willfully reject that God destroyed everyone on the earth except for those that were in the ark. The thing is, we have physical evidence of a worldwide flood all around us. We have sedimentary layers worldwide, not just in one area. Worldwide, there's sedimentary layers on the planet. There's fossil beds worldwide. When I was a kid, I lived, I lived in the uh, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and for field trips, we used to go up into the Santa Cruz Mountains looking for fossils on top of mountains. Huh, how did that happen? The flood. You know, like Ken Ham, he's the, 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 the guy that started Answers in Genesis. I watched him, I don't know if you guys remember when he had that debate with Bill Nye, the science guy, and they, uh, we, we had it at our church and watched it, and I, I was fascinated by it. One thing that Ken Ham said, and this has been many years ago now, it stuck with me. And he said this, he said, you know, we all have the same information. The, the evolutionists and the creation, we all have the same information. It just depends on how you interpret it. All depends on how you interpret it. Well, we have the historical record of a worldwide flood. We have the biblical record right here. But you know what's also interesting? There are over 200 ancient myths all over the world that recount a worldwide flood and some people being delivered. It, it, the, the, the myths change, you know, depending on which culture you're in. There's some really wacky ones out there. But, there, but in the psyche of man's mind and man's memory, there is a story about a worldwide flood and someone being delivered from that flood throughout the world. We even have stories, and I'm just going to say stories because I don't know that it's true, of supposed ark sightings on Mount Era. And I wouldn't base my, my beliefs on what somebody said, hey, I was up in a mountain, I saw an ark. But, but there is this, it's compelling anyways, that there have been ark sightings on Mount Ararat in Turkey. But you know, none of that matters to someone who refuses to believe. You could, you could show them all the evidence you want. If they refuse to believe, that doesn't matter. They'll have an excuse for it all. Peter says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Verse 6, uh, By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. The ancient world, the antediluvian world, was created by the word of God. You can read that in the book of Genesis. It was preserved by the word of God. And it was destroyed with a worldwide flood by the word of God. And what Peter is saying is the world that now exists, the world that you and I know, it's preserved by that same word of God, and it will be destroyed, not by water, but by fire, by the word of God. And so Peter, here in verse 8, you know, or the, up until now anyways, he's answering the scoffer's question, but he's not directing it to the scoffers, because they don't want to know. They, they, they could care less. But he's talking to the believers, his readers, because they're going to be hearing these scoffers. He says this in verse 8, but beloved, okay, he's talking to the church. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You just let your mind wrap around that for a minute. God exists 
outside of space and time. In fact, God created time. God's not subject to time the way you and I are subject to time. You know, according to Genesis 5 and 6, if you read the ages and you can read it, you can, I, I pulled that off of answers in Genesis, but I've done, I've done this before in my own Bible study. I've just gotten a scrap paper and started reading about the ages, how old Abraham, or Adam was, when, when he, did he have a child, how old did he live? Now, that's a fascinating thing if you realize that Adam was alive uh, I forgot which, I think Lamech, his, Noah's grandfather, he, Adam was still alive, you know, at that time. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a very, it's a good Bible study in itself. But according to Genesis 5 and 6, there were 1,656 years from the creation to the flood. And that's just by taking the biblical record of the ages of these individuals that are mentioned up to, down all the way down to Noah. Now, the year of the flood, and I didn't know this before, but the year of the flood is calculated to be 2348 B.C. They have the, 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 you know, the records, not even biblical, they have also biblical records. They have other records about things that happened in the world, historical records, and they've been able to calculate that the year of the flood was 2348 B.C. I think it was like 330 in the afternoon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 2348 B.C. I'm not saying this. It's just what I discovered. But what's interesting is you, if you take 2348, which was supposedly the year that the flood happened, plus those 1,656 years of the generations leading up to the flood, you get a calculation of approximately 4,004 years that the earth from, from, the, from the flood, to, uh, from the creation of the flood. Now, Right away, you're thinking, okay, he's a young earth guy. I am. Okay, I'll just believe. I'll just put that out there. I believe that the earth is only about 6,000 years old, and it's not a biblical. I mean, it's not a thus saith the Lord. It's not a doctrine, or I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. Um, if you believe differently, that's fine. Uh, but if you take those 4,004 years that and... and uh, in that so 2348 you know BC so it's before Christ if you add 2000 years to that since Christ's crucifixion you end up with about 6000 years and I, so that's that's where I base I do believe that the earth is only about 6000 years old and you say well why are you saying that i mean it's again it's not a salvation issue but here's something to think about, and I was just, this is how my mind works, okay? So you guys get a glimpse, my wife knows it, she always rolls her eyes, but no. <laughs> this is how my, she doesn't always roll her eyes, but this is how my mind thinks. If, if the earth is 6,000 years old, and if you take that and you look at verse 8 here in chapter 3, a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is a day, then according to God's economy, if the earth is 6,000 years old, it's only six days old in God's economy, which is very interesting because that corresponds to the six days of creation. The seventh day of creation was what? It was a day of rest, right? And in God's economy, that's a thousand years. So if I correspond that to the what the Bible talks about, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, he's going to reign for a thousand years. And you have this creation, six days in God's economy, six days for 6,000 years. And then there's a seventh day, a day of true rest and peace, which is the millennium. I, I just see how it's like, wow, that makes sense. It fits. How close are we? Oh, and then the eighth day. I forgot to mention that. 
the eighth days, right? It's always the, the, the next day of the new week, right? It's a new new day and new beginnings. You know, you have the seven chords and you, you're, you're seven notes in a thing and then you get the next octave up. It's a, it's a beginning, a new beginning. Well, after the thousand year reign of, of Christ on the earth, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So I just, it just, I don't know, it fits to me anyways. That's how my mind works. <laughs> So how close are we to that seventh day, that we'll call it the seventh day, of the millennial reign of Christ on the earth? Very soon. I really firmly believe that. We had a uh, prophecy conference here yesterday, or we live streamed it, I should say, yesterday, and uh, the information that was presented, um, you know, very, inform you know, very inf informational, but was also encouraging. And uh, it stirred my heart up. I was, I don't know about you guys, those of you that were here, man, I was stirred up about, about uh, Christ's soon return. I do think it's very soon. But there's something that's going to occur before the millennium, and that's the Great Tribulation, which is, I mean, seven years. God's economy, really, really small. Seven years, the Great Tribulation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 or 24, he was talking to his disciples about what the last days would be, what, what, what his return for the church would look like and the tribulation uh, afterwards. And what he started saying, he said, you're going to hear rumors of wars, you're wars, there's pestilences, all kinds of things are going to happen. He says, it's the beginning of birth pains. And for those of you that are mothers, you, you can identify, I'm sure you can identify with this. You know, those birth pains, they're usually, you know, they start out and they're not totally severe. You know, you're starting to feel the contractions and, you know, you have a space between them and, you know, the, 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 the nervous husband, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, let's time this because I want to get to the, I don't want to deliver your baby, our baby, you know, we got to get to the hospital in time. One of our children my wife was going into labor, and she was going to labor so fast. We got to the hospital, um, but they brought her in, and I was supposed to, you know, in my generation, you're able to go in with your wife. You know, my parents, they couldn't go in. You know, the fa fathers couldn't, but we could. Um, and uh, I still remember they gave me a smock to go into this room, and I couldn't figure out how to tie the thing on the back. I was by myself. They were all in there rushing in there, you know, doing the delivery. And I'm, I'm like, how do I put this thing on? You know, wrap it around the front, wrap it around the back. And I'm, I couldn't tie it for nothing because I was all worked up. But I get, get in there, and bloop, there's the baby. <laughs> it's like, wow, that was easy. <laughs> Don't tell your wife that. <laughs> Man, that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> Anyways, Jesus said, those things are the beginning of birth pains. But I can tell you right now, man, the world is going into heavy labor. The pains are getting much more severe, and they're getting much more frequent. I mean, think of how our lives have changed just in the last couple years. And it's, uh, after watching this conference yesterday, things are going to keep changing faster and more extreme because Jesus is returning very, very soon. I like what Jan Markell said. She said, the things are not falling to pieces. Things are not falling to pieces. They are falling in place. And so if, to me, that's one of the things that stuck with me, the phrase. I'm like, I love that. They're not falling to pieces. They're falling in place. So we talked about the tribulation, or we talked about the millennium, the and the, then the tribulation is a seven-year period. How close are we to the rapture of the church, the bride of Christ? It's seven years sooner than the Great Tribulation. 
you've probably heard this before, but when you start seeing Christmas decorations in the stores, what do you know? Hey, Thanksgiving is coming up, right? I mean, it's, that's just how we know it. Um, when you start seeing these things, you go, man, I could see. I mean, the Bible talks about the great tribulation and how, you know, all the, the world control of everyone's controlled by, you know, a number and you can't buy or sell. It's like, man, it seems like things are falling into place for that. That means the rapture of the church is that much sooner. It could be today. You're probably thinking, I hope it's today before it gets done. <laughs> I do too, actually. So Jesus has been gone. He, he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and he ascended 40 days later, ascended into heaven. That's been, what, I don't know, 2,000, roughly 2,000 plus years ago. In God's economy, he's only been gone for the weekend. <laughs> it hasn't even been a long weekend. I've just been gone for the weekend. I'll be back on Monday. That's how, I, again, that's how my mind works. So Peter says this, verse 9. Because I think this would have been a concern for the believers. And if you're going through a difficult time, man, if, could you imagine being a believer right now in Afghanistan, you, you know, running and hiding from the Taliban or North Korea? I mean, you know, you don't even know if your, your spouse is a Christian because you, they're, they're listening to everything and you can't even, you know, I'm sure some do, but anyways. Lord, why aren't you returning? Why you look at the wickedness that's going, Lord, why are you allowing that wickedness to prosper? Why are you allowing things to why are you allowing the nation to fall apart? It's all part of a plan, guys. It's all part of a plan. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God doesn't measure time the way you and I measure time. We measure it chronologically. Man, it's been a long time. God doesn't measure it chronologically. Oh, it's been a long time. I better return. God measures time morally. And we see that in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is given a vision. He's, 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 this is when the covenant is cut with, with Abraham. And there's, you could read about that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. But during that time, God speaks to Abraham and says, your, gener your, your descendants are going to go into a land. They're, they're going to they're basically be slaves. I'm paraphrasing, but you're gonna, they're going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. But in the fourth generation, they'll return. And he doesn't say it's because, you know, uh, after so many years, they're going to return. It says that they would return, but he says this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was waiting 400 years for the Canaanites, for the Amorites, the Canaanites to repent of their sin and their wickedness. But then he would judge them by bringing the land, uh, bringing the Israel into the land and driving out the inhabitants, the wicked inhabitants of the land. God measures time morally. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul talks about the day of the Lord coming. He says that's not going to happen until the falling away comes first and the, the uh, man, of son, uh, man of sin is revealed. Again, God's not like, okay, in three and a half years, this is going to happen. God measures time morally. Why is God allowing the wicked to prosper? Why is he not returned yet? Because he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
I'm glad he didn't come back before I accepted the Lord. You know, how many of us here, you know, received, I don't know when you accepted the Lord, when you became a born-again believer. But praise God, he hasn't come back yet. Or didn't come back in that time, I should say. I want Jesus to come back. But there are people that Jesus wants to come to repentance. You know, and this brings up another, another thing, too. You know, if you've been waiting, maybe, maybe the Lord's kind of given you some promise, or there's some promise in God's word that you're like, okay, I, this is for me. And you're waiting and say, and so you're praying and say, Lord, okay, would you complete this thing? And you've got this confirmation in your heart that God's going to do this thing. And, but you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. Maybe it's a salvation of a loved one. And you're waiting and you're waiting for something in your life. And it seems like nothing is happening. God's not measuring time the way you and I measure time. He has something else in view. I was thinking about this again. A thousand years According to verse 8, is like a day to the Lord. So I thought, well, let's divide up that day. 24 hours in a day. How much is one hour in God's economy in verse 8? One hour is 41 years. So can you imagine? You've been praying for the Lord to fulfill this promise, and it's been 20 years, and God still hasn't answered your prayer. It's been 20 years. And so you're praying, Lord, Lord, it's been 20 years. You gave, 20 years ago you made this promise, and you haven't fulfilled it yet. You know what I think God's going? It's like, man, it's only been a half hour. What you man, you're impatient. <laughs> Anyways, okay, again, that's my mind. Um, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I do believe in global warming. I don't think it's gradual and it's not man-made. I think it's going to happen very suddenly and God's going to do it. The global warming is real. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. That word noise is, it's the rushing as of winds and waves with great noise or a crash. You've ever been by the ocean when, when a wave, a large wave, pounds down on the surf? You know, you're, you already got this dull roar and then all of a sudden, that's what this word kind of describes. So if you hear, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the elements will melt with fervent heat. That word melt means to loosen, undo, dissolve anything bound or tied or compacted together. Now, this is interesting to me. Have you ever had two magnets and you just played with them? You know, when I was a kid, we didn't, you know, we had some toys, but it's like magnet. Ah, cool. That was my toy, you know. So you're trying to stick them together and trying to, you know, pull them apart and stuff. That, that was my entertainment for a while. One thing you learn really quickly is that opposite charges, they stick together, right? They attract. And if you flip your magnet around and try to get the two like charges, it's like you could push as hard as you want. You ain't going to get them together. You get, uh, really hard. It ain't going to happen because like charges repel. Even as a kid, you're, you're seeing that. Well, actually, what you're experiencing is what's known as Coulomb's law. It's a law of electricity, basically. Opposite charges attract like charges repel and Coulomb's law measures that force of attraction or repulsion. And that law, it's one of the fundamental laws. You can follow that law through. I mean, that's how we, I mean, that's a basic concept, basic concept of electricity. You can follow that through. That doesn't change except in one situation in the nucleus of an atom. 
The nucleus of atom, you guys know, right? The, the atom is protons and neutrons compacted into this one mass. The electrons, which are the, the negative charged particles, protons are positive charged particles. They're all clumped together. The electrons are traveling you know, around the atom. What force keeps those positive charged protons together when if you go outside of the atom, you know, like charges repel. What force is holding those like charges in the atom? Nobody knows. Scientists have different theories for it, but nobody knows. What force is stronger than the force of attraction and repulsion? Look back at verse 7. The heavens and the earth which are now are preserved by the same word. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 through 17 says this. He's speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That word consists means to place together, to set in the same place, to bring or to band together. What is that force that holds the protons, the positive charged particles in an atom together? It's the word of God. It's God himself. It's Jesus Christ. He's keeping all the elements together. The world that now exists is preserved by the word of God, and one day it'll be destroyed by the word of God, by great fire. The, 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 the coming apart of these atoms. You know, think of nuclear fission, right? A nuclear bomb, you're basically splitting an atom and you get this tremendous amount of heat, tremendous amount of energy. We'll multiply that over every element on the planet in the universe. Coming apart. That's what, this, this is what Peter's talking about. So, great, great, great to know all this stuff, right? I'm filled with facts and figures and, and uh, what do you do with it? Peter's going to tell us, verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the elements, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So we know all this stuff now. That should have an impact on us. You know, those of us that attended that prophecy conference, that should have an impact on us. What do we, what do, we do with this? It's great to get all this information, but what do you do with it? We apply it in our lives. Don't just know about the coming of the Lord for the sake of knowing. Knowing should affect a response in us. And that's what Peter says. Therefore, what type of person should we be? First of all, we should be holy. That doesn't mean sinless. It means set apart for God. We're set apart for God. Hey, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor. I'm also a technical writer. I do that on the side. That's my tent-making job. I'm doing both of those for the Lord. I, I, it's like, okay, I'm not just like a pastor and that's all I do. Some people are blessed with that, but I, I'm not. I'm blessed with being able to, to work for some of my sal salary, which is praise the Lord for that. But in whatever I do, I'm set apart for the Lord. So, God, I'm your technical writer. God, I'm your plumber. I'm your janitor. I'm your farmer. Lord, I, 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 my life is for you. I'm living for you. I'm set apart for you. 
That's what we should be doing in these last days. And godly. We should be godly. Last, last Yesterday, Jack Hibbs kind of talked about that, touched on that when he was sharing. He talked about the fact that, you know, like Jan Markell says, things are not falling apart, they're falling into place. You know, for you and I as believers, I don't like what I'm seeing going on. It, it bothers me. You know, sometimes I get into the news. I got like I got to put my news away because I get so worked up about it. But the reality is, as believers, man, we should be at peace. We should be at peace. It, sh it shouldn't be upsetting us the way it, the way sometimes it does. We should be at peace externally, but internally, man, we, there's a war going on in each one of us, and that war is fighting the lusts of the flesh. Fighting the temptations to sin. There, there, there's that constant struggle in us. So being godly, we're at peace, but internally we're resisting and we're fighting sin. And then we should be looking for the coming of the day of the Lord. Looking for it. The man, the signs are there. The flags are there. The red flags, they're, they're, they're out there. Right? You can see it. You can see it. And then finally hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. What does he mean by hastening? You know, that's interesting. Have you ever thought about it? How can I hasten Christ's return? I mean, he's got, a, he's got a specific moral time when he says, okay, that's it. I'm coming back. How can I speed that up? How can I have any effect on that? You know, Jesus in Luke 21, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says this, and he's speaking about the, the destruction of Jerusalem, which did happen. He says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. We know that that's historically true, A.D. 70. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's a, there's a time, and again, it's not chronological. It's a time of the Gentiles. What is that referring to? That's referring to the age that you and I are living in right now. The time of the Gentiles. There's going to be a time after that, and that's the time of Jacob's trouble. That's a seven-year tribulation, when that 70th week of Daniel, where, where God is again dealing with the nation of Israel. But right now, we're in, that, we're in between that time. The time of the Gentiles. Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, how, how is the time of the Gentiles fulfilled? It's by sharing the gospel. That's how you and I can hasten the coming of the Lord, is by sharing with one another, sharing with our neighbors, our family members. That's one of the things, that's probably the greatest thing that should be impacting us. Not holiness, yeah, I want to live holy, but I also want to interact with those around me and share the coming. Because, you know, like I said, our neighbors around us, they won't tell you. They won't come up to you and go, "Man, I, I just everything's going on. I, I I need an answer. I'm just so confused." But the reality is, they are. But you and I have the answer, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, because He is returning soon. Verse 13. We'll close after with this one. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. This is an important thing that I want to close with. And the question I want to just present on this verse is, what are you setting your eyes on? I ride a motorcycle, not that one, but I ride a motorcycle. And uh, one thing that I've learned over the years, and it's, a, it's true, is when you're negotiating a corner, 
the best way to negotiate a corner, the safest way to negotiate a corner is when you look through the corner, you look past the corner. And whatever you're looking on, that's the direction you'll go. So if you want to make it through a corner, man, you look at that other corner, you're going to lean as, need, as, as much as you need to or as less as you need to to get to that corner. You also can see obstacles in the way. And you can, you know, before you get around the corner, and go, oops, <laughs> I've done that before. Um, you look through your corners, and it's an amazing thing. And, it, you know, it's, they talk about that with motorcycle riding. I remember when one of my sons first started learning how to ride a bicycle, and, you know, as a father, you're running behind him and you're holding the seat and you're huffing and puffing and he's going faster and faster. And I remember one time my son, just a little guy, and he turned to look at this thing. And as he's turning, his handlebars went and he went right into a bush and uh, he didn't get hurt. But I'm like, OK, you need to look forward. Don't don't look at the side. Look for look where you're going and stuff. That's true spiritually for you and I, too. We need to look forward. What are you looking for? If your focus is on this world, and you know what? Hey, we live in the world. I have a house. I have a mortgage. I have a job. I have a family that I, you know, we have vacation plans. I'm not saying that. But are you looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ? Or are you, is your focus on this world? Because this world's going to burn, <laughs> literally. All this stuff that we're building up around, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. What are you focused on? And that's what I wanted us to, to uh, close us with. Um, don't let yourself be distracted. And it's easy to do in our culture, in our generation. It's easy to be distracted. Don't let yourself be distracted. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'll have the worship team coming up here.